0: The art world, it is essentially a money laundering business.
1: The best fakes are still hanging on people's
0: walls, you know. They don't even know or suspect
1: that they're fakes.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is a podcast about deception, greed, and forgery in the art world. You knew the painting was fake.
3: Um...
2: Listen to Art Fraud on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Hi, it's Bethany Frankel, and on my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel, I talk to people who have had non-traditional roots to get where they are. Each episode, you'll hear from disruptors like Matthew McConaughey.
5: I think that day is when he goes... I was a good father to him. I raised him to have this confidence to go, I'm going my own way, I'm breaking out.
4: Kelly Rippa. Nobody handed me anything, and I fought really hard for everything I had. And so many more. Listen to my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm excited to be back with a new season of You and Me Both. You know, when we started this podcast, we were going through some tough times. And let's face it, we still are. But I am a firm believer we're stronger together. So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh, and help us find a path forward. Listen to you and me both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
7: Today, we're glad to bring you a special episode of Why Am I Telling You This? We'll be doing these episodes periodically to introduce you to some of the inspiring people and important ideas I've encountered throughout my career in public service and at the Clinton Foundation. On this episode, we're sharing a recent program hosted by the Foundation and the University of Arkansas Clinton School of Public Service, which focused on the research that took place at the National Institutes of Health when I was president including developing antiretroviral treatments for HIV AIDS, laying the groundwork on vaccine research, both of which made it possible to develop COVID-19 vaccines more quickly, and completing the mapping of the human genome, at least the first draft. It was perhaps one of the most important and farthest reaching achievements of my eight years in office. I hope you find these conversations as fascinating as I did, and that you come away with a greater understanding why investing in science is one of the best things we can do to build a healthier, better, more equitable future for everyone. I want to thank all of you who are responsible for the Comperus Lecture Series, especially Dean Comperus Drew Compris, Catherine Ann Trotter, for endowing this series in their parents' names. Frank Campurus was one of the most respected doctors in our native state. He and his wonderful wife, Kula, raised a great family and made the world a better place. So to the panelists, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Uh, Thank you to Donna Shalala, who I think still is the longest-serving Secretary of Health and Human Services ever. She managed to fit that in between being president of Hunter College and chancellor of the University of Wisconsin at Madison and then her long tenure at the University of Miami, where she now teaches. And she did a stint as the most overqualified member of the United States House of Representatives. Thank you, Harold Varmus, for all the work you did uh, when I was president. Thank you, Francis Collins, for many things, but overseeing the international effort to sequence the human genome and in the process brokering a peace with (laughs) Craig Venter and the private sector effort to turn a race into a relay. Thank you, Tony Fauci. I'm amazed you're still standing after all you've been through these last two years. And I was always grateful to you for your hard work and never more grateful than to see you trying to talk common sense in the middle of nonsense. Thank you, John Gallen. Thank you, Gary Nabel. Thank you, Dr. Wendy Chung and Charles Rotimi. I'm grateful to all of you. The NIH is a national treasure and it had received, even in the polarized times in which I governed, we had an astonishingly broad base of bipartisan support at the National Institutes of Health. I came into office when we were entering the information age the whole revolution in part made possible the sequencing of the human genome, which obviously required massive digital capabilities. There's always been a tension in every budget season, and we saw it with President Biden's recent budget, between the present and the future. Always a tension between what is too little and what is nowhere near enough to sleep comfortably at night. I'm very glad that we could double the budget of the NIH almost and more than triple the budget of the Human Genome Project. I think that it's clear that the work that was done helped to speed the development of antiretrovirals for HIV-AIDS, did important work in vaccine research and established the Vaccine Center which I think hastened our ability to develop the COVID vaccine, especially with the completion of mapping the human genome. I spent $3 billion of the American taxpayers' money on that, and we had the first rough draft in 2000. And I tell everybody that it's the best $3 billion I ever spent in my life. We had a return on investment of something like 300, 400 to 1 already and an incalculable impact on the future prospects of life. Let me say one more thing before our panel starts. One of the reasons the NIH accomplished as much as it did is that so many people with extraordinary talent and dedication chose to work there and at the Department of Health and Human Services and in the White House, all pulling in the same direction. Most of them could have made more money doing something else but none of them could make a bigger difference doing something else. So all of you are by definition difference makers. We were talking um, before the program started about our friend Madeline Albright. And the last conversation I had with her, I sort of began by asking about her health. Her voice was strong, her mind was clear, she said, look, I'm not well, but I've got a good doctor and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and it'll either work or it won't. Let's not waste time on that. The only important thing is what kind of world are we gonna leave to our grandchildren? And we proceeded to talk about that. Every day, every step of progress you make, every blind alley you run into and then turn around and try something else, helps us in ways that are not always clear to keep going forward and to keep proving that, in the end, the most important discovery of the Human Genome Project is that all non-age-related differences we can see among human beings are rooted in less than half of 1% of our genome. And sadly, the world gets in trouble when we major in the minors and only talk about that half a percent. We spend 99.5% of our time fixated on our differences And when we're in a foul humor, we completely forget about the other 99.5% of us that is the same. By using your different abilities, by making your diversity of intellect, imagination, and effort a virtue, you reaffirm the fundamental sanctity of life in all of humanity. I'm very grateful and I can't wait to see what you have to say. Thank you very much.
8: Thank you, Mr. President, for those remarks. As we transition to our first panel, let me introduce Secretary Donna Shalala, who before becoming Secretary of HHS, served as the Chancellor of University of Wisconsin, one of the nation's top research institutions. Donna.
1: Thank you very much, Kevin. Uh, and thank you, Mr. President. I've always believed that the president's most important uh, legacy was his commitment to science, to the NIH in particular. There'll be lots of references, and he made one of them, to bipartisan efforts uh, to successfully double, almost double, the NIH budget, which um, unleashed a golden age of biomedical research. But for me, it was not just the doubling, but what the leadership did with that money. First, second, um, it was really the leadership we recruited and those we retained, and the impact of um, of training grants on preparing a new generation of uh, of scientists. Today, we're going to hear from some of those leaders, and I'll introduce the four for my panel, starting with Dr. Harold Varmus. Uh, Dr. Varmus, of course, won the Nobel Prize with his colleague Mike Bishop in 19. 19- the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. He was director of the NIH from 1993 to 1999, and he came back to lead the NCI from 2010 to 2015. Dr. Tony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and now the chief medical advisor as well to President Biden, and of course our leader during the Clinton administration in an extraordinary effort um, against AIDS. Dr. John Gallen, director of the NIH uh, Clinical Center, actually from 1994 to 2017, 22 years, uh, John Gallen led the critical, uh, the very critical clinical uh, center, uh, named for, uh, uh, for Dale Bumpers. Um, Currently, he's the Chief Scientific Officer for the Clinical Center and Associate Director for Clinical Research at NIH. And Dr. Gary Nabel, um, who um, was recruited to build a vaccine uh, research program for the country, and I really made a mistake, that's named after, uh, the Vaccine Research Center is named after uh, uh, Dale Bumpers. Um, He was the founding director of the Vaccine Research Center at NIAID and um, uh, pioneered a renaissance in vaccine development. And we'll hear from Gary about how that was the underpinning for the vaccines of the future. He's currently at uh, MODEX Therapeutics as the president and chief uh, executive officer. Uh, Dr. Varmus, this is all yours.
8: thank you very much. The NIH uh, has been in existence for over a century. It's a federation of, today, 27 institutes and centers, each of which um, uh, receive uh, their direct appropriations. Uh, The budget for the NIH today is about 43 billion. Uh, When the Clinton administration started, it was a little under 11 billion, increased uh, steadily, and then uh, initiated a five-year doubling process. The NIH is a health related science agency, doesn't do any direct health care. It provides basic and clinical research opportunities, uh, training and infrastructure to the nation's uh, medical research establishment. About 10% of the research that is done by the NIH is done by government scientists, mainly on the campus in Bethesda. Uh, The rest done through grants and contracts to institutions and medical schools and universities uh, in all states and some abroad. Uh, And these grants and contracts are issued, uh, importantly, through competitive peer review. Like all agencies, NIH has annual appropriation, but it's important to note that uh, the NIH does its research through multi-year grants and contracts and works on very long-term problems, which means that uh, support from the administration uh, to keep its budget strong is incredibly important we've had support at the nih from both sides of the aisle for many years and in general we have a good working relationship with both the executive and the legislative branches Um, there are two ways in which the executive branch especially the white house provides comfort and support to the nih during uh, an administration first is the support for that long-term ongoing work that supports uh, the biggest medical research enterprise in the world and you're going to hear uh, about uh, how things that came to fruition during the Clinton administration uh, and the treatment of HIV and AIDS. Uh, and, but there are many other examples that we could have been uh, illustrating on, in uh, advances in, in cancer treatments and the improved outcomes of, uh, uh, of cardiovascular disease and stroke and, and, and many other things. But there are also shorter term needs, health crises, construction projects, starts to new programs, expansions of others, like the Genome Project that we'll talk about in some detail in a moment. From my perspective as the NIH director during most of the Clinton administration, and as a scientist who's dependent on NIH all the time for my own work, uh, I look back on the Clinton years as the golden years in medical research uh, for many reasons. First, we had the enthusiasm of not just the president, but the president's family. Indeed, the first member of the family to come visit us was, uh, was, was the first lady who came to the NIH for a day-long tutorial about genetic research and virology, uh, and she then uh, uh, brought the president out for his uh, Saturday tutorial just after giving a radio address about the Family Leave Act, uh, and uh, he heard about uh, research going on in AIDS and genomics and cancer research. Uh, and that persuaded the first daughter to turn up and spend several days uh, working in one of uh, a lab run by one of our outstanding female scientists. Uh, we still have vials that are labeled CC1, CC2, CC three for mutants of uh, of a bacterial protease that uh, she isolated. Um, the second reason is that' uh, the strength of the budget proposals. Uh, the president said to me many times, uh, i'm not I'm not proposing, Everything I want you to have, but I know that Congress is going to double your increase, even, even when uh, Republicans are in charge. And uh, he followed that prescription for many years and uh, helped to start the five-year doubling in 1998. It's had the, the effects that uh, Secretary Shalala just mentioned. A third aspect of his support was the quality and attitude of our partners in the U.S. government during. Uh, during the the administration that uh, I've served in. Other members of the panel who've been introduced to you will illustrate some of the things that uh, remain incredibly important to the entire scientific enterprise. The first is how long-term science pays off, and you're gonna hear from Tony Fauci about, um, who has been director of the uh, Allergy and Infectious Disease Institute for almost 40 years, about how long-term investments in uh, the studies of infectious agents, uh, including HIV, have led uh, led to culminations of those efforts during the Clinton years, with uh, our ability to prevent transmission of HIV from m- mothers to infants, the development of protease inhibitors, and development of uh, of highly effective therapies against AIDS. When the Clinton administration began, the the program that was run by government scientists in Bethesda was. Uh, under some criticism and uh, a report from outside scientists arguing that one thing we needed to do was revitalize clinical research at the Clinical Center in the NIH Intramural Program, led to a recommendation uh, that was given uh, due um, scrutiny by Office of, o- of Office in- <laughs> the Office of Management and Budget, uh, and uh, uh, and he'll tell us about the planning of the new Clinical Research Center named for Mark Hatfield. Um, and uh, the the many new things that have been done there. And then you'll hear from Gary Nabel about uh, how he managed, as the first director of the Vaccine Research Center, uh, which is a direct outcome of uh, President Clinton's involvement in AIDS research. Uh, uh, The then head of the Office of of AIDS Research, Bill Paul, uh, unfortunately deceased uh, a couple of years ago, uh, led to... um, um, a proposal. We put together a, a vaccine research center on campus. And one day, uh, the president and Gal- Al Gore had uh, me and Tony Fauci come down and chat with him about what needed to be done in AIDS research. And he immediately bought on to this idea of building a vaccine research center and made that part of, a, of an address he gave uh, shortly thereafter at Morgan State. And that uh, persuaded Congress to uh, proceed with an investment that, as you'll hear, is paid off in many ways. So let's turn this over now to uh, members of, uh, other members of the panel, uh, starting with Professor Fauci. <laughs> I just
0: went through my mind the other day, um, almost on a year-by-year basis, the extraordinary advances that we experienced literally from the day you set foot into the White House. You remember one of the first things that you did in 1993 was to establish the White House Office of National AIDS Policy, or ANAP, which actually is still today uh, exerting an important function. We never had that before you came into the White House. And then, though, it was also at a time when the toll of morbidity and mortality was accelerating in the country. And by 1994, AIDS became the leading cause of death of all Americans aged 25 to 44. But then things started to turn around with regard to therapy. You'll remember the famous ACTG 076 results, the first time that we showed that you could actually interfere with the transmission of HIV from a pregnant mother to the baby. That has to be one of the true hallmarks of iconic studies done at the NIH under your leadership as president. The years that really were so exciting, all eight of them, but there was a cluster of a few in the middle that, from my standpoint, was transforming from 1995 and 1996. And that's when we went from one and then two and then three drugs in combination culminated by the first time of the use of protease inhibitors, which was the third drug in the three-drug combination. What happened then was something that I have to tell you without hyperbole, every time I reflect back on that, I still get little bits of goosebumps because I had been taking care of persons with HIV for those years from 1981 right up until the time in 1996 when that combination proved to be completely transforming and turning around the lives of persons with HIV. And the 1996 summer Vancouver International AIDS Conference, those results were presented, and it shook the world in a very positive way, because from that time onward, the idea of hospices was a thing of the past for persons with HIV. I have a photograph that I show at many meetings of Harold and, and uh, you and I, and Vice President Gore and Bill Paul in the Oval Office I was presenting to you a a schematic of a brand new um, discovery of a co-receptor called CCR5 for HIV. You got very wonky because you really wanted to know the details of what that receptor was. But at the end of the scientific discussion, you brought up what Harold had mentioned. You said, by the way, Tony, it's 1996, December the 3rd. it's, we had HIV since 1981 and the virus was discovered in 1983 and 84. Why don't we have a vaccine? And that's when we got into the discussion of the possibility of having a vaccine research center. And you said you would do something about it. I thought you were just trying to be nice to us. But to our great surprise, in May of 1997, you announced at a commencement address at Morgan State that you actually were going to support the building of a vaccine research center at NIH. But the years went on and things actually got better and better. One of the things you did do that led to the success in a subsequent administration of the PEPFAR program, but even as you were president, you issued an executive order to assist developing countries in importing and producing generic. HIV treatments, so that they could have available to them treatments that were costing tens of thousands of dollars here. And importantly, when you left the presidency through the Clinton Foundation, you continued that pushing to have the availability of drugs to people in the low and middle income countries. So it was an extraordinary run, and I'm so proud to have been a part of it with you.
7: We'll be right back.
0: The art world, it is essentially a money
1: laundering business. The best fakes are still hanging on people's walls, you know. They don't even know or suspect that they're fakes.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is a podcast about deception, greed, and forgery in the art world.
1: I just walked in and saw this bright red painting presuming to be a Rothko.
2: Of course, art forgeries only happen because there's money to be made. A lot of money. I'm listening to how what they're paying for these things. It was incredible amounts of money. You knew the painting was fake. Um. Listen to Art Fraud on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
6: podcasts. Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm so excited to be back with a third season of You and Me Both. When I started this podcast, we were going through some tough times, and let's face it, we still are. And here's what I know we cannot get through this alone. So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh, and help us find a path forward. This season, I'll be talking about the state of our democracy with experts and with people organizing on the ground. We'll draw inspiration from some amazing people like Olympic star Alison Felix and Grammy Award winner Brandi Carlisle. And we'll get into the hard stuff with writer Cheryl Strayed and my dear friend and colleague Huma Abedin. So join us, listen to you and me both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: It's Bethany Frankel, and on my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel, I talk to people who have had non-traditional roots to get where they are. Pretty much a started-from-the-bottom-now-they're-here story. These are the people I'm curious about and want to have real conversations with. I'm not asking things that you've heard already that are just regurgitated nonsense. It's not just for people to come on here and promote a book. I want to hear what they think about different things. I want to hear how they made it big. Each episode, you'll hear from disruptors like Matthew McConaughey.
5: I think that day is when he goes, I was a good father to him. I raised him to have this confidence to go, I'm going my own way, I'm breaking out.
4: Kelly Ripa. Nobody handed me anything, and I fought really hard for everything I had. (laughs) Sammy Hagar.
2: I didn't realize I was really building a brand. No one told me that you're building a brand.
4: And so many more. Listen to my podcast Just Be with Bethany Frankel on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
9: The NIH Clinical Center opened in 1953. Since its opening, incredible teams of basic and clinical scientists in close partnership with very courageous patients, often in the scariest moments in their lives resulted in an outstanding history of accomplishment, improving health care for the nation and the world. A few examples of early accomplishments at the Clinical Center include chemotherapy for cancer, cure for childhood leukemia, lithium for depression, fluoride to prevent teeth decay, identification of high cholesterol as a risk factor for heart disease, first three treatments of AIDS, and the discovery of hepatitis viruses B and C that caused cirrhosis and liver cancer that eventually led to a vaccine for hepatitis B and tools to protect the blood supply from and to treat hepatitis C. Dr. Baruch Bloomberg received the Nobel Prize in 1976 for discovery of hepatitis B and Dr. Harvey Alter from the Clinical Center in partnership with doctors Michael Houghton and Charles Rice shared the Nobel Prize in 2020 for co-discovery of hepatitis C. 40 years after the Clinical Center opened, the hospital infrastructure was barely able to sustain modern clinical care and science, and the Clinical Center came under scrutiny. In 1994, a report on the NIH intramural program to the NIH director, Harold Varmus, by a committee co-chaired by Drs. Gail Castle and Paul Marks recommended for the first time a new clinical center be reconstructed as promptly as possible. The same year, Vice President Gore's Reinventing Government II initiative said that the clinical center should be critically reviewed and re-engineered to improve its effectiveness and efficiency. In response to these recommendations, the Department of Health and Human Services Secretary, Donna Shalala, convened a team coordinated by Dr. Helen Spitz to conduct a review. The review reiterated the earlier recommendations to build a new clinical center. As a result, with the support of the Clinton administration and the Congress, plans to construct a new clinical center were initiated. Key events in moving the process forward included President Clinton visiting the Clinical Center in August 1995. On September 30, 1996, Congress approved funding of the new hospital to be named the Marco Hatfield Clinical Research Center. Construction began in January 1999 and was completed in August 2004. And on September 22, 2004, at a ribbon-cutting ceremony, a patient speaker, the late Susan Butler, called the Clinical Center the House of Hope, highlighting what the Clinical Center means to patients and to the public. The opening of the new Marco Hatfield Clinical Research Center enabled the continuation of great accomplishments that continue to improve the health of the nation. These include cell-based immunotherapy for cancer, new treatments for kidney cancer, a new drug for depression, ketamine, first in human studies with the Ebola and COVID vaccines, discovery of a new category of diseases, auto-inflammatory diseases, and new drugs to treat them, gene therapy for several rare diseases, including sickle cell disease, and creation of the undiagnosed diseases program where patients from across the nation with unexplained medical problems are brought to the Clinical Center for evaluation and advice for treatment. In 2011, the Clinical Center received the Mary Woodward Lasker Bloomberg Award for Public Service for serving since its inception as a model research hospital, providing innovative therapy and high-quality patient care treating rare and severe diseases, and producing outstanding physician scientists whose collective work has set a standard of excellence in biomedical research.
8: John, thanks very much for that really terrific summary of, uh, not, of not just the clinical center itself, but uh, stressing the importance of clinical research. Uh, it, it gets more important every day as uh, basic science produces more products that need to be properly tested and evaluated. Uh, in the context of of what is the world's largest uh, research hospital in the world. Um, So we're gonna turn now to Gary Nabel to uh, say more about uh, a topic that has already been introduced by a few of us, uh, namely the the Vaccine Research Center. Gary, welcome.
10: Thanks, Harold. Uh, President Clinton, it's really an honor and a pleasure to join you today, uh, along with the powerhouse team that you had put together Uh, At the time that I came to NIH Secretary Shalala, Harold, Tony, John, it's great to be uh, reconnected on this occasion. You know, when we think back now to uh, the AIDS crisis uh, as Tony outlined, uh, as our memories uh, fade, we, we sometimes forget the unimaginable toll that that crisis took on human life. Uh, not only the toll on human life but the quality of life for victims and families, as well as the profound effects uh, economically and politically uh, throughout the world. Uh, More than 39 million people have died uh, in the epidemic so far, more than five times the numbers that we've faced with COVID so far. And Despite the gravity of the global health threat and significant investments in the science at the time, Um, By the late 90s, despite the pronouncement from Margaret Heckler and the Reagan administration that we'd have a vaccine in a few months back in the early 80s, the vaccine remained elusive. And yet it remained the best way to prevent and contain the epidemic. Now, the reason for it, obviously, is the biology of HIV. This is an insidious virus, and it posed an unprecedented scientific challenge for vaccine development. And the reason for that is because it had such enormous genetic diversity and it also had the ability to camouflage many of its important uh, viral entry proteins. There are more variants of HIV in a single person infected with the virus than there is on in the entire planet and the whole population of the world during a single year of an epidemic like COVID or flu. So compared to licensed vaccines where there may be three to 10 components at much, as, at, at most, this complexity poses a really daunting challenge, one that thwarted the best and the brightest of scientists working in individual labs around the world. So it was really in this context that Harold and Tony and Bill Paul, uh, with support from Secretary Shalala, approached you. Uh, and and where you all decided that the best thing to do is to develop a dedicated vaccine research center to be built at NIH to overcome the scientific, technical, and early development challenges facing HIV uh, and uh, other emerging global health threats. The room where it happened was the Oval Office of the White House, and I think it's important to note that uh, this group uh, that met there really served as a brain trust uh, that not only started the process, but importantly remained involved and nurtured its growth. The Vaccine Research Center was an innovative model for the support of scientific research uh, in three ways. First, it provided uh, a physical place, a physical laboratory, whereby you could bring the best and the brightest scientists together in one research center, uh, and where they could work in a multidisciplinary way to approach the problem because vaccine development is, is highly complex and involves many different uh, uh, types of approaches. Secondly, it was, a, it was a mission-driven research organization. We came to work each day knowing that a day saved in bringing a vaccine to the world saved 6,000 lives. Those efforts extended not only to HIV, but also, as we worked at the NIH, uh, to other emerging health threats. The first SARS outbreak, avian flu, Ebola, chikungunya, Zika, and now COVID. Uh, And finally, uh, it was a place where we could actually make clinical products and conduct human trials. And so it allowed us to operate independent of the constraints by the vaccine industry in undertaking uh, vaccine development. And it's important to recognize that uh, in large part, many of these vaccines are not developed because there's a a failure of the private markets to uh, address global health challenges. So it's an important model for public private partnerships. The center has succeeded in a number of ways. More than a hundred clinical trials have been performed. Connections to industry have been made to make new vaccines uh, accessible to the public. Perhaps the most tangible recent success has been its catalytic role in accelerating the development of the COVID mRNA vaccine. The VRC worked quickly internally and with industry to advance prototypes and to identify structure-based mutations that freeze the virus in a form freezes the virus in a form that optimizes vaccine protection and gives us some of that protection that we're now seeing across diverse strains. And finally, at least from my perspective, the the Vaccine Research Center is a gift that keeps on giving. The VRC has multiple productive collaborations with academic and biotech uh, and pharma labs. There's now a diaspora of VRC scientists who have taken the training that they've received there and the spirit of the institution to new places where their work contributes to the preservation of, uh, continued preservation of global health. Uh, COVID vaccines have likely saved tens, if not hundreds of millions of lives. And the VRC contributed in a foundational way to its development, while progress continues to this day on HIV, Ebola, chikungunya, uh, and universal flu. For me personally, it was an unparalleled and special opportunity to show how science and data can impact human well being and save lives. To President Clinton, to Secretary Shalala, Harold, Tony, your leadership and wisdom has achieved significant goals, and I'm confident there's more to come. So stay tuned, the work continues. And finally, I very much appreciate the opportunity to help build the Center and to serve.
1: Given the pressure everybody was under, you could have just made the vaccine center very narrowly focused on HIV-AIDS. But it seems to me that the decision to make it a vaccine center to cover more than just AIDS was absolutely
0: critical for the future. That is really an important issue. It became very clear to me uh, and to Gary, who was the director at the time, that the talent that we had accumulated in the senior people and then their junior colleagues and acolytes was such that although we put a full-blown effort on HIV, particularly some of the things that Gary mentioned, the structural biology capability, the idea of of structure-based immunogen design, it became very apparent to us, Donna, that that was applicable to RSV, that was applicable to any of a number of viruses that we did not want to constrain ourselves just to studying HIV. So we went into flu. You know, we did coronaviruses with the first SARS-CoV-1 and then MERS. And then the, the particular interest that Barney Graham had in respiratory syncytial virus, which was his love before he even came there, actually ultimately partnered with Peter Kwong to develop the image design that led to the coronavirus, So it was just a beautiful symphony of people who were playing together, and it became very clear that it would go well beyond HIV, which it has.
8: I'm going to make one footnote to that comment, uh, Tony. Um, back in the very first days of the Clinton administration, when things were not going very well in in the development of treatments and protections against AIDS, we had uh, commissioned an outside group headed by a distinguished virologist, Arnie Levine, to evaluate the AIDS program. And uh, one of the recommendations was that that uh, the the development of immunology as a as a as a discipline uh, was not being sufficiently applied yet to the study of, of HIV. And um, and then Bill Paul, who had been director of the Office of AIDS Research, noted that we had tremendous strength in immunology ranging from people like you, Tony, to many others on campus who could make a contribution to the development of, uh, of, um, uh, of uh, vaccine research. And uh, people on campus began to gather, and the uh, next thing we knew, we had a proposal for a vaccine research center. And I'm very grateful to the president for saying this is not just going to be an HIV center. It was going to be a center for, for vaccine production, and it's proven to be incredibly valuable along the lines that you said.
1: Many people think that uh, uh, that NIH is organized into silos, and it seems to me the Vaccine Research Center, the Clinical Center are two examples where the entire um, uh, community of NIH came together. John, you would not have been successful if everybody hadn't bought in.
9: Absolutely. <laughs> all the 17 centers and institutes that in the intramural program use the hospital, and they all interact very closely.
1: That's great. I think uh, President Clinton wanted to make a uh, comment here. Mr. President?
7: This was fascinating hearing this from your perspective. I, I wanted to uh, say to me, you made a case that if we want to continue this, we have to give get broad-based support. And I'll give you uh, both within the Congress and in the larger country. Uh, in the Congress, Harold, I've always given you credit for this. I don't know if you deserve it, but if you don't, you'll give it to somebody else. I'll but, accept it. But You know, we got waxed in the 94 presidential election because I tried and failed to get health care reform allowing the history of it to be rewritten and because I tried and succeeded in getting the assault weapons ban, the 10 bullet ammunition clip limit, and the, and the uh, Brady Bill passed. But I talked to Newt Gingrich one day, and he had a 100 members of his new majority who didn't didn't have a passport and were proud of it and thought government would, you know, mess up a two-car parade, and the purpose was to have less of it. And uh, I knew he was interested in science because he had given me a copy of E.O. Wilson's book on ants. (laughs) So I said to (laughs) Newt, well... We gotta, we gotta get these people on a research bandwagon. You need to take them to NIH. But when they got there, these people who thought the government was some sort of amorphous, evil blob, whoever was responsible for the tour these freshmen congressmen took started them in a hospital bed. And they lay in a bed and looked at the films uh, saying what all the NIH was doing on the TV in the hospital room. And it was a, an elemental political observation, which is that everyone wants to go to heaven this morning, but nobody wants to die. And <laughs> we all want to live as long as we can. And it was brilliant. And all of a sudden, we had no problems getting the Republicans to vote for the NIH budget. We had a couple of years where the Christian evangelical community leaders Basically, we're involved in mainstream politics, talking to everybody. Uh, I brought them in in 2000 on the Millennial Debt Relief Initiative. And I had worked with a couple of them who were friends of mine. And they all supported relieving the debt of the world's poorest countries if they put the savings into health care or uh, education or development. And uh, President Bush later institutionalized this, but they weren't quite ready on AIDS yet. You know, they, they weren't quite past, the, oh, we just got to talk about prevention and abstinence and nothing else. But by the time he got to the point where he had the votes in Congress because of their support to pass the PEPFAR program, which I loved, you know, we we tripled overseas AIDS uh assistance when I was president and we were giving 25 or 30% of what the world was giving, but it was peanuts, nothing. And so after he did that, I want to give him credit for something else that a lot of people don't know. Uh, In the beginning, they were only working, I think, in seven or eight countries because they were requiring PEPFAR to purchase for these countries, uh, medicine that big pharma was making and they'd give them a discount but it was like 150 uh 1500 a year which was less than the ten thousand or so we were paying in harlem but way more than 150 or so we were already down to with the price the prices we had negotiated through the clinton health access initiative so I was flying with the President Bush to the Pope's funeral and flying home, and he said, talk to me about what you're doing on AIDS. And so I did. And I said, you know, you ought not to make these countries buy generic drugs, but you ought to give them the option to take the money you give them and spend it on generics if they want. And he said, well, I'm told that they're not as effective. I said, I know they tell you that, and I know they're important to you politically, but... It's not true. I said, what if I were to submit to the FDA every single drug we put in any human body in any country for review and approval? If they get approved, would you okay the money? He said, it sounds like a fair deal to me. It was just the two of us talking. He didn't have, no lobbyists had a chance to talk him out of it. He just cared about whether poor people were gonna live or die. And I could tell he really cared. And uh, so we submitted 22, as I remember, 22 different products, and 19 were immediately approved by the FDA. And he didn't slow walk it, he didn't do anything. He played it totally straight. They just reviewed them and approved them. And all of a sudden, PEPFAR was in more than twice as many countries treating a hugely greater number because he did that. And he had the support Of the christian evangelical community so that's a good both those examples show you why we need to keep working to build broad-based support for the work of the nih Uh, and our common humanity can sometimes be found when we're sick or someone we love has something wrong with them and even when it's not available anywhere else so and i thank you and Harold, I've always given you credit for putting those congressmen in the hospital bed. <laughs> More after this.
6: Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm so excited to be back with a third season of You and Me Both. When I started this podcast, we were going through some tough times and let's face it, we still are. And here's what I know, we cannot get through this alone. So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh and help us find a path forward. This season, I'll be talking about the state of our democracy with experts and with people organizing on the ground. We'll draw inspiration from some amazing people like Olympic star Allison Felix and Grammy Award winner Brandy Carlisle. And we'll get into the hard stuff with writer Cheryl Strade and my dear friend and colleague Huma Abedin. So join us, listen to you and me both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The art world, it is essentially a money laundering business. The best fakes are still hanging on people's walls,
1: you know. They don't even know or suspect that they're fakes.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is a podcast about deception, greed, and forgery in the art world.
1: I just walked in and saw this bright red painting presuming to be a Rothko.
2: Of course, art forgeries only happen because there's money to be made. A lot of money. I'm listening to how what they're paying for these things. It was incredible amounts of money.
5: You knew the painting was fake.
2: Um. Listen to Art Fraud on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: It's Bethany Frankel, and on my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel, I talk to people who have had non-traditional roots to get where they are. Pretty much a started from the bottom, now they're here story. These are the people I'm curious about and want to have real conversations with. I'm not asking things that you've heard already that are just regurgitated nonsense. It's not just for people to come on here and promote a book. I want to hear what they think about different things. I want to hear how they made it big. Each episode, you'll hear from disruptors like Matthew McConaughey.
5: I think that day is when he goes, I was a good father to him. I raised him to have this confidence to go, I'm going my own way, I'm breaking out.
4: Kelly Ripa. Nobody handed me anything and I fought really hard for everything I had. Sammy Hagar.
2: I didn't realize I was really building a brand. No one told me that you're building a brand.
4: And so many more. Listen to my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
8: We're going to continue the conversation, very much in the same vein of talking about how um, uh, science proceeds, how it works, how presidential support really helps, especially when it comes to uh, getting uh, increased allocations of funds for an important project uh, and, and getting the the uh, the, the confirmation of the, that uh, significance by having the president himself speak out on the importance of genomics. And uh, indeed, we've just heard. Uh, just a few moments ago, um, uh, President Clinton um, reminiscing about uh, the, the importance of learning how much of our generic, genetic heritage is held in common among people who uh, uh, seem to um, thrive on, on strife as opposed to recognizing the 99.9% sim, uh, identity in one genome, from one genome to the next. Uh, before we launch into this a more detailed discussion of the Human Genome Project, I want to issue a very brief reminder that genomics, like everything else, is built on prior work and work of the NIH and other organizations around the world for 20 or 30, even 40 years uh, to develop the tools of molecular biology and genetics uh, was fundamental to being able to put ourselves in the position of uh, imagining uh, the, the sequencing of a complete genome. And indeed, even the idea of doing a complete analysis of the genome was dependent upon de- development of technologies uh, that, uh, that um, um, many people around the world were working on. Uh, having a specific proposal initially from uh, a revered cancer researcher, Renato de Beco, a Nobel Prize winner, who made the, what seemed initially to be an outrageous proposal that we do something uh, as, uh, as outrageous as, uh, as looking at every nucleotide of the, f- of the 3 billion pairs of nucleotides in the human genome. Uh, and then the vetting by the National Academy of Sciences, first steps being taken by the Department of Energy at Los Alamos, uh, the establishment of an office at NIH uh, in a prior administration, uh, then the recruitment uh, by Donna Shoel and Bernadine Healy, my predecessor as Director of NIH, of Francis Collins, from whom you'll hear just a moment, and in just a moment, that uh, all set the stage for this remarkable acceleration of work on the genome project that that went on uh, over the next uh, several years, leading to the culmination of the work in the around around the year 2000. Uh, and we, you're gonna hear from uh, three people about the importance of all this. First, from Francis himself, who uh, was the, 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 the prime leader of the program uh, during the Clinton years as director of the Human Genome Research Institute, uh, and um, then, and how he worked with Uh, other agencies, the Department of Energy, for example, and international partners, including the Wellcome Trust in in the UK, and many others in in a large number of countries who participated in this remarkable uh, global effort. And then you're going to hear about uh, applications of the Human Genome Project uh, from two uh, individuals who uh, were not engaged directly in the Clinton administration, but uh, in some sense have, through their work, fulfilled the, the ambitions of the Clinton administration in its effort to accelerate uh, the, the Human Genome Project. Uh, first from Wendy Chung, who's the Director of Clinical Genetics at Columbia, uh, talking about uh, how the Genome Project has influenced her attempts to diagnose uh, uh, particularly inborn diseases of uh, that involve uh, changes in our genes and uh, how those patients are cared for, and then you'll hear from Charles Rotimi, who's currently the director of the trans Center for Research on Genomics and Genomic Health, it's, it's Genomics and Global Health, uh, through the use of genomics and uh, international work in that in that regard. So Francis, if you would uh, uh, spend some minutes telling us about the experience you had uh, in the Clinton administration accelerating the Genome Project, then we'll turn it over to the the other two speakers.
11: Well, I'd be glad to, and thank you, Harold. Mr. President, Secretary Shalala, uh, dear colleagues and friends, it is a privilege uh, to be part of this event uh, with people I admire so much. Yeah, I'm walking back the memory lane here to the fall of 1992. I had been hired by Bernadine Healy to come and lead the Human Genome Project at a time where, let's be clear, it was a little uncertain about whether this was going to work, and a fair percentage of the scientific community was not at all supportive, thinking that this was just going to be a boondoggle. And then there was an election, and people began to say to me, did you realize that you were hired by the previous administration, and maybe you ought to be a little careful about whether you really have a job. Well, I need not have worried because I got a call. I I don't know if it was the day after the election or the day after that uh, from Donna Shalala saying, never fear, Uh, we really believe in the Clinton administration about this project. I'm gonna be your secretary and I will make sure uh, that this project gets the attention it deserves. So I decided that was right and uh, gave up my professorship in Michigan and moved into the old nurses dorm on the NIH campus where together with a very plentiful abundance of cockroaches, I began to learn how the government actually operates and was happily joined a few months later by Harold, who lived in another apartment down the hall in the old nurse's dorm uh, with Connie, his spouse. Uh, The good part of that was we did a lot of strategizing at night over red wine about what exactly could be done here as we began to bring molecular biology and genomics uh, forward at the NIH in a way that showed such promise. And we knew we had wonderful leadership Uh, with Donna, and we've learned just how enthusiastic the president was about genomics when he visited us on a Saturday and had the experience of hearing his questions, um, showing him how to dissect a human chromosome, and recognizing that we had a dream team uh, to support NIH and to support the Genome Project. And that was good because of course the genome project began with a budget that was essentially zero before it got started and it had to ramp up and it had to ramp up faster than the rest of NIH or it couldn't possibly do its job inventing all these technologies and also figuring out how to actually do sequencing at scale. Something like a thousand base pairs a second was what we had to get to and when we started out we were lucky to do a thousand base pairs in a day. It began to pick up speed Uh, Secretary Shalala decided in 1997 that the National Center for Human Genome Research could be upgraded to an institute as it now is today. Thank you, Donna, for that. And it was international from the start, and that was a big part of what it made possible to go at this pace, with partners in six countries and 20 labs, all agreeing to work at the same set of guidelines and standards for excellence and accuracy of the data, and a very important decision made about that time, that this data ought to be in the public domain. This this should not be something as our shared inheritance that anybody owned. And so we began putting that sequence into the public domain every 24 hours. President Clinton strongly agreed with that. There were other entities that were claiming bits and pieces of the genome and trying to file intellectual property and sometimes getting it on those. And so um, in the spring of 2000, President Clinton and Tony Blair uh, put out a statement saying it would be a good thing for the genome sequence that belongs to all of us uh, to be accessible to everybody. Well, Joe Lockhart in his press briefing that morning didn't quite get it right. And I think he said something like, well, gene patents aren't gonna be allowed anymore. And the stock market crashed, which was a little embarrassing. But fortunately, it all got cleared up fairly quickly. And it was a a deep dip that was then uh, retrieved and brought back into the better place, although I think some people in biotechnology were a a little shaken up by it. Well, about that time, we had this race uh, that the president was referring to uh, with a private sector effort uh, called Solera, led by Craig Venter, it was getting a bit unseemly. Uh, both the public project and the private project were making progress. Um, I asked Ari Petrinos, who was running the Department of Energy's effort in genomics, to convene Craig and me for pizza in his basement. And many essays and articles have been written about that pizza party, uh, and there was more than one. And the result of that, a memorable day, Mr. President, June twenty-six, uh, 2000, East Room of the White House, with the scientific community and the world kind of gathered to see what this was. As we announced a, not complete yet, but a very good draft, about 90% of the genome. It was the milestone that many people had been waiting for. Mr. President, you referred to the map that Meriwether Lewis had presented to Thomas Jefferson in that same room. Well, that was pretty uh, interesting as a parallel. And um, I went back and read your remarks. You called the genome the most important, most wondrous map ever produced by humankind. And it was the language in which God created life. And you emphasized how all humans, regardless of race, yes, are more than (laughs) 99% the same, And we all knew that you were quite attached to that, having noted how you had lectured the Serbs and the Croats in Kosovo, that they really shouldn't be fighting with each other because their genomes were so similar. I'm never quite sure how that played out, but I thought it was a wonderful way (laughs) to put forward some science at a difficult time. And that was such a moment, and we got to the end of the speeches, and you closed with this ad lib, and for some reason, it just stuck in my mind, so I thought I would read it again. You said, when we get this all worked out and we're all living to be 150, young people will still fall in love. Old people will still fight about things that should have been resolved 50 years earlier. We will on occasion do stupid things and we will all see the unbelievable capacity of humanity to be noble. This is a great day. It was a great day, Mr. (laughs) President. We crossed into new territory that day. But just before finishing, I'd say there's another day that I'll remember about six months later. There was a farewell in the Indian Treaty Room for the President and the First Lady. Interestingly, right now my office in the EEOB is right down the hall from the Indian Treaty Room as I'm now serving as the acting science advisor to President Biden. I got an invitation to this farewell uh, to the President and the First Lady from Chris Jennings, and I thought I have to bring something and the timing was just right. I brought the first CD that contained the human genome sequence on something you could hold in your hand, and I made a brief presentation. We were finishing the Nature paper that described this, which would have got published about a month later. And in that paper, which I had a lot of time devoted to trying to say something that was maybe even a little poetic, it ended with T. S. Eliot's famous words from Little Gidding we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all of our exploring will be to, where, will be to arrive where we started, and then the first lady finished the quote for me, and know the place for the first time. Yes, we know the place. It's a textbook of medicine. It's a parts list, and it's a record of our history. Genomics has expanded beyond anyone's dreams and expectations since then. The Human Genome Project took 13 years and $3 billion. Now your genome can be sequenced in a day for less than 1,000. Applications to cancer, birth defects, drug discovery, gene therapy, infectious disease, including COVID, have massively extended our reach in science and medicine. And there is much more to come. And for that, I turn to the next two speakers, uh, beginning with Dr. Wendy Chung. Thank you.
3: I'm so privileged to be here, President Clinton. Um, As I was listening to speakers today, I would say I'm actually a product of much of what they spoke about. Uh, I actually began my career scientifically as a student uh, at the NIH Clinical Center, and NIH was inspired to become a genome scientist. I started out my training literally the year the Human Genome Project started and realized, as Dr. Collins said, if we're putting that much money into this, there's going to be amazing things that we're going to be able to do, and was able to start dreaming about the day when we would be able to actually sequence our genome within a day. Just to give you a sense of where we are uh, as I look back, of those 20,000 genes that we now know of, There are remarkable 7,000 of those that we can now associate with a very specific human disease. And in fact, these conditions are quite common. Individually, many of them are rare. I'll grant you that. But collectively, if we look at many of these Mendelian conditions, 10% of us actually have or will have manifestations of these conditions. And I, as still a practicing physician, see a lot of these patients that are at risk, for instance, for hereditary breast or ovarian cancer, but they're able now today to be able to walk a different path than their mothers walked, or for those at risk of colon cancer, to walk a different path than their fathers have walked. They're able to see that they're at risk, and they're able to do something about it. They're able to take that into their hands and not let that be their destiny. They're able to really rewrite by seeing what's ahead and to be able to take very conscious and deliberate actions, sometimes very brave, but to be able to lead a different life and to be lead able to lead a healthier life. They really, they're really they inspiring. They are incredible in terms of what they personally do with this information, but there is so much more that's yet to come. It's been remarkable for me to be able to see that technologically, we can read out those 3 billion base pairs, we can do it for less than a $1,000, but we had to overcome other hurdles. Sometimes this has been referenced, even legal hurdles, to be able to take down gene patents, to be able to have the ability to know that information content and to be able to use that to take care of ourselves. As we've done, and I did it just yesterday in the neonatal uh, intensive care unit at our hospital, we can take babies, for instance, who are critically ill and be able to read out their genome, just in some cases, hours to days, and be able to make critically life-threatening decisions about how to save their lives in some cases, some cases where we'll need to be able to do an emergent transplant of an organ uh, to be able to take care of a body part for them that is failing them. In some cases, to be able to give them medicines that are now tailor made for their particular cystic fibrosis mutation, or as uh, you'll be hearing in terms of gene therapy, to do some remarkable things that we're just beginning to think about for certain types of immunodeficiencies or certain types of hematological conditions like sickle cell. I'll tell you one story that really has made a big impression on me in terms of what is yet to come for us. When I started medical school, the most common genetic cause of death for children less than two years of age was a tragic condition called spinal muscular atrophy. And I'm using intentionally the past tense, used to be the most common genetic cause of death. It was heart wrenching for me to see these children because many of them with the most severe form of the disease wouldn't live to see their first birthday because they were so profoundly weak, so profoundly weak that they could not breathe. They could not be able to inspire, to be able to take a breath. With time, though, and with a lot of this very foundational work that came from the Human Genome Project, from the science that came with it, we've learned that there are, in fact, not just one gene, but also a backup copy of that gene called survival motor neuron. And being able to use the technology to co opt that second gene, we've been able to think about creative ways to be able to tweak it, to be able to upregulate it, to be able to use it, uh, to be able to compensate for the deficiency that those children have when they're born. One of the remarkable things that we've done with that is to actually, in tandem, uh, develop methods of being able to identify those children as newborns. So at this point, we can now actually, from a heel prick, be able to identify those newborns who are going to be at risk for spinal muscular atrophy, a progressive degenerative disease that otherwise would have taken their life, and now be able to use either gene therapy or one of three FDA-approved medications that is now life-saving for them. So that as we've been able to do that, and for this condition, which is an equal opportunity condition that affects all different individuals from all different parts of the world, now to have a completely different outcome for them, hopefully to be able to give them long, full, and healthy lives. That particular scenario, to be able to go from knowing that condition, diagnosing it in newborns, coming up with treatment, we did in record time. Really just a matter of four years that we were able to compress that with the diagnosis, rapid diagnosis, and getting those treatments, those three treatments, to now be approved. And I'm convinced that these are things that we can do over and over again with the foundation of this technology and with the industry that's been developed to be able to use this. Important to me, and I'll end with this, is just as this comes forward, what we did with spinal muscular atrophy was so important to me from an equity point of view that, as I alluded to, we were able to take a drop of blood from a newborn and be able to understand what conditions they would be at risk for from a public health point of view, where we could do this for every single baby, and it mattered not where they were born, who their parents were. Every single baby would get the same access and does get the same access to this phenomenal care that we can provide them. And that, I think, is going to be one of the things in terms of the future of what the Human Genome Project will have produced, allowing every child to have an equal, healthy start to life by using that information to be able to keep them safe and keep them healthy. It's been remarkable to be with you today. I'm honored.
7: We'll be right back.
0: The art world, it is essentially a money laundering business.
1: The best fakes are still hanging on people's walls, you know. They don't even know or suspect that they're fakes.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is a podcast about deception, greed, and forgery in the art world.
1: I just walked in and saw this bright red painting presuming to be a Rothko.
2: Of course, art forgeries only happen because there's money to be made. A lot of money. I'm listening to how what they're paying for these things. It was incredible amounts of money. You knew the painting was fake. Um. Listen to art fraud on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm so excited to be back with a third season of You and Me Both. When I started this podcast, we were going through some tough times, and let's face it, we still are. And here's what I know we cannot get through this alone. So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh, and help us find a path forward. This season, I'll be talking about the state of our democracy with experts and with people organizing on the ground. We'll draw inspiration from some amazing people like Olympic star Alison Felix and Grammy Award winner Brandy Carlisle. And we'll get into the hard stuff with writer Cheryl Strayed and my dear friend and colleague Huma Abedin. So join us, listen to you and me both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: It's Bethany Frankel, and on my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel, I talk to people who have had non-traditional roots to get where they are. Pretty much a started from the bottom, now they're here story. These are the people I'm curious about and want to have real conversations with. I'm not asking things that you've heard already that are just regurgitated nonsense. It's not just for people to come on here and promote a book. I want to hear what they think about different things. I want to hear how they made it big. Each episode, you'll hear from disruptors like Matthew McConaughey.
5: I think that day is when he goes, I was a good father to him. I raised him to have this confidence to go, I'm going my own way, I'm breaking out.
4: Kelly Ripa. Nobody handed me anything, and I fought really hard for everything I had. Sammy Hagar.
2: I didn't realize I was really building a brand. No one told me that you're building a brand.
4: And so many more. Listen to my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
12: Thank you very much. Uh, it's really an honor and a privilege to be being a member of this panel and to be invited uh, by uh, the President Clinton's Foundation. I, I want to start by saying today is my birthday, and uh, I couldn't, I can't think of any other way but to celebrate it with uh, President Clinton and this wonderful, esteemed panel. Uh, so again, I, I am in celebratory mood and. Um, I think my parents uh, who gave birth to me in Nigeria uh, some 65 years ago, and I just qualified for Medicare, uh, you know, is, uh, will be extremely proud uh, to see me on, on this panel. My comments today uh, really will be to emphasize uh, how we can continue to ensure that the gains of the human genome is indeed uh, accrue to all human populations around the world. I am, um, it was a great honor when I was invited uh, by Francis Collins and others, to participate uh, in a spin-off, the very first spin-off of the sequencing of the human genome, and that is the International HapMap Project, uh, which uh, was indeed very important because apart from knowing the addresses of the four combination of letters that make up our genome, we needed to know how these vary uh, between individuals, between families, and also, uh, you know, between ancestry populations around the world. And scientists realize that it is only by knowing these differences and similarities that we'll be able to really fully understand how the signatures of the environment that our ancestors lived shaped our genome and how that varies and how that influences disease and human health around the world. So the engagement of African population in the HapMap study, especially, firstly, the Yoruba community in Ibadan, Nigeria, was truly the first major effort to engage African communities uh, in the the human genome and how we can indeed uh, bring uh, all global uh, populations to bear. On these wonderful success stories uh, that was indeed funded uh, under the Clinton administration. The HapMap project, uh, you know, also was, again, like I said, my first opportunity to be, to be a part of this major initiative. But what the HapMap showed to us, and I, I just emphasize the point that uh, President Clinton made earlier in his comment, and that is when we look at the, the diversity and the and the, the magnitude and scope of human genetic variations. Uh, we, we, we come to the, to the conclusion that Africa populations has the highest diversity in the world. And that is not a coincidence. That is based on our evolutionary history. African populations or, or human beings in general have lived the longest on the African continent and therefore had had their genome have had more time to vary within that environment. And the point I'm making here is that there are aspects of our genome that we can only study by looking at African people. So I want to say that studying African populations and other global populations is is a social justice issue, but more importantly, it's a scientific imperative. We cannot truly appreciate uh, the scope of human variation without going to the roots and the cradle of humanity. And this is why I say sometimes that beneath all of our skins, we are indeed Africans. If we treat our history far enough, most of us, or if not all of us, we end up somewhere on that geographical location called Africa today. So it's critically important that we engage the African community it will benefit Africa, but it will benefit the world even more. So this is why uh, under the uh, uh, umbrella of the African Society of Human Genetics uh, and working with uh, Francis Collins and other African scientists, we were able to establish the what we call uh, H3 Africa, uh, Human Heritage and Health in Africa, that has brought over $200 million uh, to change the participation of African scientists and African population in human genetics. This was funded by the NIH uh, with Francis Collins as the director and also the Wellcome Trust Foundation uh, you know, in the UK. Now, this initiative was unique in the sense that it actually enabled African scientists to fully participate by giving them the money directly to African institutions and to African investigators. And it has led to the creation of pan african laboratories, you know, biorepositories and bioinformatics hubs that is changing the way African scientists are participating and informing, uh, you know, uh, the human genome project and its success to this as it continues to be. We are now in a position where we can cure diseases like sickle cell using gene editing. So that is remarkable. African countries are also using the gains of the Human Genome Project to inform essential drug lists, you know, all the way to HIV in places like Botswana, and and, and, uh, understanding genetic variation in terms of drug metabolizing for something like codeine in Ethiopia. So you can see the gains are beginning to accrue, but what is important here is creating opportunity for African scientists to be a part of this wonderful initiative and to ensure that tomorrow's medicine will indeed be available to all humanity. We are indeed all come from the same place. And we need to share is that our diversity is not an illusion, but we should not use it to re-emphasize old prejudice. Thank you for inviting me. Really glad to be a part of this effort.
8: Charles, thank you very much for those uh, interesting remarks. Um, President Clinton began our discussion of genomics at the start of the, the session by emphasizing how much of the genome is held in common and uh, how the, what we're learning from genomics can be a, a way of trying to bring the world together and make it a safer place. Uh, I think we're learning, too, that uh, the diversity that you refer to and the, the, the pathogenicity of certain Uh, variations in the genome can be the source of disease as wendy pointed out uh, presents a a, a challenge for all of us to be sure that the the fruits of our research are widely shared uh, in africa in asia south america everywhere in the world and uh, in the few minutes we have remaining before we wrap this up uh, i'd be curious to hear from the any of the three of you about uh, ways you see that uh, that our existing institutions and scientists can may have more of an effect on, uh, on providing uh, open access to uh, the, the fruits of genomics. I know that from my own work for the World Health Organization over the last several months that there is a receptivity to the idea of, uh, of sharing genomic technologies, even in the poorest countries, and to be sure that, uh, as has been illustrated during this pandemic, that the technologies that have been developed Uh, um, in response to, partly in response to the pandemic, uh,
11: are influential in in saving lives. Well, I'll just quickly respond. I think, Harold, you're right that we have a great opportunity here. And with projects, uh, Charles mentioned H3 Africa as a start on this, uh, where the goal really is to enhance research capacity in a sustainable way in in low and middle income countries, that is the best possible way uh, to place the kind of capabilities in the hands of those who will need them in their own countries, and also perhaps to stem the brain drain, which otherwise has been a really serious issue for losing the talent that you want to have maintained. And I'm excited to see how that is taking shape in Sub-Saharan Africa, although we've got a long way to go. We need to come up with even better ways uh, to provide some kind of a partnership with industry, with uh, NIH and the Wellcome Trust and other philanthropy organizations, but we need to get countries in Africa to recognize that this is time for them to invest as well. We need to go from what I would call donorship to ownership, uh, where uh, ministers of finance recognize that one of the best things they can do for their economy, for their people, is to put some money into research and development because it will pay off over and over again. And we're kind of making that case and starting to get, I think, some receptivity, but that's what Kind
8: of yeah, I, I agree entirely with that, and that the World Health Organization is going to be uh, participating in that as well, and um, I think in, in many ways fulfilling the kind of ambitions that uh, President Clinton and many others have had since the inception of the Genome Project—that this is something that can help unite humanity, and as opposed to tearing it apart—and. Um, we are approaching the yeah, end right. of our session here, and I did want to reflect just for a moment on the incredible privilege it's been for many of us to serve in the Clinton administration when things did move ahead so swiftly. In, at the NIH, not just uh, in, in elucidating genomes, but in improving uh, the, uh, the, the our understanding of how the human body and many other organisms work, and how the studies of uh, of biological systems from many perspectives can lead to improvements in uh, our understanding of disease and our efforts to create new therapies for diseases like AIDS and cancer and uh, cardiovascular disease and many others. And I think it's useful for all of us to acknowledge our appreciation for the, the respect that the, the president uh, in that era, um, uh, President Bill Clinton, had on uh, the country's appreciation of science and uh, uh, the efforts that uh, scientists are making to improve human welfare.
7: Why Am I Telling You This is a production of iHeartRadio, the Clinton Foundation, and At Will Media. Our executive producers are Craig Manassian and Will Malnati. Our production team includes Jameson Katsufis, Tom Galton, Sarah Horowitz, and Jake Young, with production support from Liz Raftery and Josh Farnham. Original music by Watt White. Special thanks to John Sykes, John Davidson, Angel Lurinha, Corey Gansley, Kevin Thurm, Oscar Flores, and all our dedicated staff and partners at the Clinton Foundation.
13: Hi, I'm Stephanie Street, Executive Director of the Clinton Foundation, where we work every single day to advance President Clinton's commitment to public service and improve lives across the country and around the world. President Clinton often reminds us that we're all in this together, that we rise or fall together. That's why, in the face of crisis, we answer the call. We act. At the Clinton Presidential Center, we've been proud to work together with partners to serve hundreds of thousands of meals to those struggling to put food on the table, to get books, early learning and educational resources into the hands of parents, families, and educators who are navigating the realities of remote learning and need it most. And the center continues to serve as an educational and cultural institution focused on cultivating the next generation of leaders to make our future brighter than ever. Learn more about this work and see how you can get involved. Visit www.clintonfoundation.org
6: podcast. Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm excited to be back with a new season of You and Me Both. You know, when we started this podcast, we were going through some tough times. And let's face it, we still are. But I am a firm believer we're stronger together. So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh, and help us find a path forward. Listen to you and me both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The art world, it is essentially a money laundering business. The best fakes are still hanging on people's walls,
1: you know. They don't even know or suspect that they're fakes.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is a podcast about deception, greed, and forgery in the art world. You knew the painting was fake.
3: Um.
2: Listen to Art Fraud. On the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Hi, it's Bethany Frankel, and on my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel, I talk to people who have had non traditional roots to get where they are. Each episode, you'll hear from disruptors like Matthew McConaughey.
5: And I think that day is when he goes, I was a good father to him. I raised him to have his confidence to go, I'm going my own way, I'm breaking
4: out. Kelly Ripa. Nobody handed me anything, and I fought really hard for everything I had. And so many more. Listen to my podcast, Just Be With Bethany Frankel, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.